I also saw reflections of that in, in that film, in that um, that film began with a shot of Adolf Hitler coming to the, to the Nuremberg rally in a, in, a, in a plane. And there is something mystical about coming out of the heavens into a situation. And of course, the, the battleship, the USS Abraham Lincoln, it creates a majestic backdrop uh, with uh, you know, many uh, armed, many people in the armed forces. Uh, you can see in this picture that uh, there's George Bush. Um, you know, he's, he's comfortable in a, in a milieu where he, f he feels uh, fit in and welcome. Um, so, uh, this discussion of imagery, I'll read some of this text. Uh, War is, after all, a, a concentrated form of terror. I'm talking about the strangeness of the concept of having a war on terror when war is terror. How do you have a, uh, a war on terror, terror against terror? The somatic adjustment was introduced in, a, in the course of a military victory ceremony on board a U.S. aircraft carrier. The Battle of Iraq declared President George Bush from the deck of the USS Abraham Lincoln is one victory in the war on terror that began on September 11, 2001. Uh, Bush's speech was delivered amidst an event that was pure American showmanship, a finely honed spectacle of political propaganda designed to generate the kinds of images that belong more in the realm of mythology than to articulate argument. In an era when software, public relations, and celebrity have become more central, have become central currencies in the political economy of mass illusion, the event was a textbook example of artful advertising for the military-industrial complex. It served to help illustrate the most consequential conflicts of our time are not those fought with the weaponry of physical violence, but with the means of manipulating public opinion. The Bush White House seemingly acknowledged this aspect of contemporary warfare by referring to it, its website, by referring on its website to the largest media embed operation on any ship in naval history. In the in this operation, the Lincoln's large crew uh, played host to photographers and scribes representing the world's major media conglomerates, from Time Warner to Disney ABC to General Electric MSNBC to Westinghouse CBS to Rupert Murdoch's transnational media empire. The info entertainment conglomerates are deeply embedded within the technopoly of the military-industrial complex. When you think of the military-industrial complex, you think of companies building battleships, building jets, equipping armies, building uh, high-tech communication systems. Uh, but what about the newspapers? What about the TV stations? What about the reality that in order for the military-industrial complex to be able to carry out its, its uh, chosen course, there has to be a public opinion that will support it? Uh, so, so the concept of media conglomerates as part of the military-industrial complex, I think, is uh, a significant thing that we need to grapple with. The media spectacle married elements of the American sci-fi thriller, thriller Independence Day and Leany Riefenstahl's classic Nazi propaganda film, Triumph of the Will. 
In the opening scene of Triumph, Adolf Hitler is pictured approaching from the air as the Nazi party rally at Nuremberg. Uh, he's, he's approaching the Nazi party rally at Nuremberg in 1934. I said 36. I, uh, so it's 1934. President Bush began his big spectacle on board the Abraham Lincoln by touching down on the vessel's deck in a S-3B Viking jet. Emblazoned on the windshield and the aircraft were the words Commander-in-Chief. The US president then emerged in a full flight, uh, in full fighter pilot garb, invoking the imagery of the dr dramatic concluding scenes in Independence Day. In those scenes, an American president leads a global coalition of armed forces from the rock, uh, cockpit of a small jet fighter. The aim of the US-led operation is to defend the planet from the attacks of outer space aliens. Uh, the Lincoln and its crew provided the American president with a monumental setting for a stirring depiction of militarism triumphant. While the producers of the extravaganza borrowed heavily from the propaganda techniques pioneered by uh, Riefenstahl and her associates, however, the event was designed to conjure up the aura of Gettysburg rather than Nuremberg. A central element of the plan was to locate the ceremony on board the warship named after the American president who abolished the institution of slavery in the United States. In 1863, President Abraham Lincoln went to Gettysburg, the site of the Union's most pivotal victory over the slave-owning Confederacy. In his address, one of the most celebrated orations of any American president, and the uh, Gettysburg Address is 300 words. It's only 300 year words. It's a, it's a very uh, intensely conceived uh, I guess, work of propaganda, one of the most inspiring speeches uh, imaginable. Lincoln invoked the rhetorical power of some of the most timeless phrases in the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence, of course, is issued on July the 4th, 1776. Its major author is, is, is uh, Thomas Jefferson. Lincoln referred, uh, Lincoln justified federal military action in the American Civil War <clears throat> as being dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. The sacrifices on the Union side were dedicated to a new birth of freedom, and the government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. In 2003, George Bush attempted in a speech on the Lincoln to draw on the authority of the same principles. He described US operations in Iraq in serving the cause of uh, of freeing the Iraqi pe people from enslavement. The purpose of the campaign, Bush asserted, was to produce a new regime of, by, and for the Iraqi uh, people. So, uh, so if I can go back, uh, I think this is one of the issues that we have to deal with in our time deal with in globalization, that, that uh, the uh, marketplace and the political marketplace, the uh, effort to advance the sale of product, the effort to advance political uh, agendas, and of course, to build up the military industrial complex is, a, is an agenda. Uh, this type of initiative depends upon imagery. Uh, creating auras around uh, people, uh, celebrities, using celebrities to give uh, a certain um, 
sense of mystique or uh, uh, attractiveness to, to ideas or products. This was the essence of uh, Naomi Klein's book, No Logo, where she affirms that the logo, essentially the most valuable thing now in our economy, is the imagery around logos. And companies really don't want to have big factories anymore with pension plans and lots of workers and uh, industrial relations and negotiations with unions. They'd rather contract out to manufacturers in China or uh, Taiwan or Mexico uh, and get the products made cheaply and outside of the realm where you have to you know, deal with these full-time employees. What the companies will spend money on, of course, is Michael Jackson to, to wear the shoe, uh, you know, a famous rock band to, um, to Bono to, to, to sell Mac, to sell the video iPod. Um, you know, it was the Rolling Stones, didn't they do uh, Windows? Um, <clears throat> so, so this is where the value is. This is, wh this is where the value in our, our economy is. Uh, now, in opinion, what is an opinion? Is this all opinion? Uh, an interpretation, well, you take facts, you come up with an interpretation. Well, an interpretation, perhaps if, if it's based on a good uh, assessment of the facts, it counts as an interpretation. An interpretation, um, I mean, if, if an interpretation is done by somebody with authority, somebody who says, say has done a PhD on the topic, does it have more credibility? Uh, does a PhD just automatically have more credibility than an MA on any subject? Or, uh, uh, you know, we, when we get into the, uh, an opinion, we can all have opinions on anything and everything, but is that opinion informed? And if it's informed, perhaps it's more like an interpretation. So uh, these are uh, the... Um, subjects that I'm wanting to contend with uh, tonight. Let me... One, two, three. Okay. So let me uh, go to the chronology and uh, go to... Uh, can we treat this as some kind of treatment of uh, facts. Uh, uh, so here I'm trying to set the stage for uh, globalization. I'm trying to build up to 1492. Uh, let's go to China. The Ming drive the Mongolians out of China and take over the imperial capital. Never firmly in control, the Mings were constantly forced to defend their rule against internal and external enemies. The extension and renewal of large sections of the Great Wall of China during the Ming rule demonstrate the defense, defensive attitude prevailing in the imperial court. The court eunuchs tended to dominate the core political culture of the Ming dynasty. Uh, okay, let's go to Prince Henry the Navigator. And I keep seeing uh, references to him. This seems to have been a very, uh, he seems to have been a very major uh, thinker uh, intellectual who uh, brought together the world's or Europe's foremost authorities on map making, on navigation, on astronomy, and uh, was essentially trying to uh, uh, outflank 
the Muslim uh, move into Africa. So uh, Prince Henry, the navigator of Portugal, establishes a center for navigation studies at SOG with significant implications for the future of European empire building. There he and his associates push the frontier of map making, cartography, and the study of astronomy. The initial aim is to outflank Muslim exploration along the uh, west coast of Africa. So, the uh, importance around of, of navigation, this is, I, I think, a, a spectacular uh, illustration, uh, an ancient historical document. You see the name of Francis Drake on this, uh, on this uh, illustration here. Uh, Francis Drake, of course, circumnavigated the planet after uh, 1579 in the Golden Hind. Sir Francis Drake was a great favorite of Queen Elizabeth I. He was essentially a pirate. He plundered uh, the Spanish galleons carrying gold and silver. And Sir Francis Drake was um, given a, a certificate to do this. He was made into a privateer. So pirates become privateers. When you become a privateer, you can do this legally, uh, as long as you give Queen Elizabeth a percentage of, what, of your plunder. Uh, so, so this was a very major part of building up what would become the British Navy. Uh, but this is part of a larger process, if I can go back to the illustration here, of, uh, of the science of navigation. So here are different instruments. Uh, scientific instruments. You can see he's, he's taking the depth here. And you can see uh, here is the world, uh, here is the, here is the uh, cosmos. So there is this fascinating connection where um, there, there is this uh, study of the stars and the planets. And this enables uh, navigators to fix where they are in land. Here's a good illustration of, uh, of this uh, type of um, science that Prince Henry the Navigator um, worked on. And you know, here, here's a map, a Portuguese map. And the Portuguese are quite adamant that they're not going to go west like Columbus did on behalf of Spain. Uh, they're going to go around Africa and uh, get to India, and Vasco da Gama by 1498 actually does that. And you can see all of this knowledge about, uh, about the coastline there. Um, Prince Henry the Navigator is essentially starts this process of going along the coast in Africa. And of course, Muslim uh, missionary work, Islamic uh, spiritual men are trying to convert Africans and gain uh, control of the coast of Africa. So from the very beginning, there was this sense of competition with the Islamic world, Christian competition with the Islamic world. 
so it so so much of this uh, impetus begins with Henry the Navigator um, and uh, this these breakthroughs these scientific breakthroughs and of course these scientific breakthroughs demand a very different they demand a, a view of reality that says the world isn't entirely shaped by divine intervention. Uh, in order to understand the world, we have to look at facts, we have to try to assess reality in its own terms uh, and get away from the idea that everything that is happening is somehow God intervening and uh, instead of reading uh, the Bible or reading the Koran or reading the Torah, uh, you have to break away from that and, and, and change your uh, relationship to knowledge to some extent. And this is, uh, this is uh, you know, a huge tension. Uh, William uh, McNeil in The Rise of the West, I read that uh, passage uh, in, a, in a prior lecture, where he says this tension in society, in Western society, between irreconcilables, between, he calls it, the Renaissance, which is sort of science and using intellect and the Reformation, which is all about, uh, no, it's all God's work and we've got to put ourselves in, in line with God's work. This tension is actually part of what makes the West so dyna dynamic. The fact that these tensions don't get resolved, the fact that you have these struggles taking place uh, to this day. I mean, you can see in the United States a very sharp uh, debate between those who think that the government is basically uh, an expression of God's will that the U.S. government should intervene to spread the American way because God wants that to happen. And uh, there shouldn't be any shyness to thinking of the government as an expression of religious uh, destiny. Uh, and then there's another point of view saying, holy, holy smokes here, don't go down that road. U.S. has Muslim citizens, Jewish citizens, atheists, Buddhists, Baha'i. Uh, the, the government can't be taking any one religion and saying it's the official religion. That's a theocracy. And of course, you know, we saw the Roman Catholic Church in 1493 was so persuaded that the Roman Catholic Church was the universal church for all humanity. Whether or not the people in the Western Hemisphere, the indigenous people, knew it, they were eventually going to become Roman Catholics. The Roman Catholic Church had the perfect right to hand over the Western Hemisphere because the Roman Catholic Church is the universal church of all humanity, and it eventually will express that. So, so this, uh, this rise of the scientific method, this rise of uh, um, the dedication to the principle that human beings have the capacity for reason, that we have intellect, and that we can apply the machinery of our reason and logic and make sense of the world, and, and make sense of the world in scientific terms. Uh, this is, this is a, all of this breakthrough uh, in navigation, in, in cartography, depends on this. So uh, if we go back to the, to the uh, webcam here. So I'm trying to, you know, look at different the planet from different points of view, different places. So circa 1450, the Longhouse League of the Five Nations Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee is established by Daganawida and Hiawatha in what is now Upper New York State. 
The formulation of the great law establishes the most famous and widely studied Aboriginal constitution of the Americas. The imagery and philosophy of the League with its great white pine and white roots of peace inspire many observers from Benjamin Franklin to Lewis Henry Morgan to Karl Marx and Paul Wallace. And, you know, as you're reading this, if you're curious, well, who's Lewis Henry Morgan? Anybody here know who Lewis Henry Morgan is? Uh, the anthropologists in the room may, uh, may have an inside track on this. Yeah. The man? Yeah. Um, uh, isn't he a 19th century evolution? I guess you got to... From savagery to barbarism to civilization, which became, you know, is social Darwinism. So, uh, you know, you would, might want to look this up on Google, just put in his name. Uh, some would say anthropology starts with him. Some would uh, point to Franz Boas and say anthropology starts there. Um, Lewis Henry Morgan, he was a lawyer in Rochester. He was near the Longhouse people. He studied them. He wrote a book called The League of the Iroquois or The League of the Haudenosaunee. Came out in, a, in the 1850s. I think it was 1853. Uh, Karl Marx read it. And Frederick Engels read it. Um, and uh, Lewis Henry Morgan went from this group to generalize, aha, what we're seeing among the Longhouse people, the Iroquois people, the five nations, and then the Tuscarora joined, they become six nations. This is a stage in human evolution that every people have gone through. And he says that the breakthrough, <clears throat> if I go back to uh, the, 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 you know, so you go from savagery to barbarism to civilization. And I'm looking at uh, Lewis Henry Morgan. <clears throat> And of course, this is quite consistent with Charles Darwin, you know, Darwinism, which says life is the, the natural history of all organisms comes from the struggle for survival. The strong organisms survive, they're able to re reproduce and replicate. The weak organisms die off. And so that's how adaptation takes place. That's how you go from lower to higher life forms. Social scientists get hold of this and say, aha, so now we have an explanation. Why is England so powerful and other countries not? It must be social Darwinism. It must be an expression of this move through the stages of, 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 uh, of evolution. So uh, Lewis Henry Morgan theorizes uh, that civilization begins when you in other words, you move from barbarism to civilization when you bring in something called patriarchal monogamy. Patriarchal monogamy. What is patriarchal monogamy? The family structure among the Iroquois League was uh, different. Um, there wasn't the nuclear family. It's not like one husband, one wife. They have their children. Uh, young women... Uh, could have affairs or make love with anybody except in their clan. If you're a turtle, you must not be with another turtle. If you're a wolf, you must not be with another wolf. 
So this is depicted as an era which you could see like women, a lot of liberation, like women are not uh, uh, treated as property. There, there is a, 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 um, a fluidity to human relationships. He argues, Lewis, uh, Lewis Henry Morgan argues that uh, once patriarchal, patriarchal monogamy takes over, the idea that property will be passed down through the male line, suddenly at that point, the idea that whoever is the mother, the father must know, must be sure that the children, the offspring are coming from him. And so that is the beginning of class exploitation. The exploitation of women is the beginning of the exploitation of the owners of property, uh, of, of workers, uh, class exploitation. So there is in this view that evolution is not altogether positive. It's complex. It's many faceted. And so uh, Frederick Engels reads Karl Marx's notes after he dies, and he finds that Marx was just ecstatic about uh, Lewis Henry Morgan's writing. And Engels writes uh, the, the family private property in the state, which is treated as a, one of the primary texts of uh, communism. That was one of the first uh, Marxist books that was uh, legally published in Russia. Lenin said it was a great work. Lenin went on to lead the Bolshevik Revolution. So, um, you know, here's an interesting uh, way that we can look at something going on in America, but it has all of these, this is globalization studies, this, it has all of these um, implications if you, if you follow it through. These and other thinkers tend to see the, in the Longhouse teachings of peace, power, and righteousness the glimmerings of universal law suitable for the governance of all humankind. So, um, the Indian summer in uh, Canada, remember there was a confrontation at Oka, and a group called the Mohawk Warriors um, uh, took a stand against the expansion of a golf course into uh, the pines. Part of the teachings of the uh, White Roots of Peace, the White Roots of Peace grow underneath this great white pine. The great white pine is the symbol of the, of the Confederacy, of the Longhouse League. On top of the great white pine is the eagle, very uh, vigilant, has the best seeing mechanism in the entire animal world, you know, eagles have the best eyesight of any creature we know of. So this is a symbol of vigilance. Uh, uh, so there's a bearing of the weapons. You've heard the phrase, you know, let's bury the tomahawk. I think it probably goes back to the founding of where Duganawida and Hiawatha, uh, they have these teachings of peace, power, and righteousness. They say there's too much blood feuding going on among us. We've got to find a way to decide our conflicts without resorting to violence, if possible. So we need procedures, we need laws, we need to have a way to decide our, our, our affairs among ourselves. So, they, so this is where the Longhouse Confederacy comes from. And uh, the Longhouse Confederacy was the basis of the government of the Six Nations people at Brantford, Ontario, until 1923, when the RCMP went in and broke it up and put in a another kind of government. So the Longhouse government went underground, and it emerged to the surface in 1990 at Oka, because the Mohawk warriors 
saw themselves as, as uh, warriors in, in the cause of protecting the great law and in defending their land. Uh, there was in this uh, confederacy a sense, well, we're bearing the hatchet, but this eagle is vigilant. If some enemy comes against us, we will very quickly defend ourselves. And there was a, a divide in the, in the longhouse where actually one group was against these people. And it all had to do with cigarette smuggling and, and uh, some would say organized crime. You know, it, it was a very complex uh, uh, history. But uh, uh, of course, how do these issues uh, play themselves out? Um, so so this, these are, this is, you know, I'm endeavoring to take this out of sort of folklore. Um, the Zapatistas. How many of you feel confident that you know of the Zapatistas? <clears throat> One of the subjects that I read out uh, on uh, the possible topics the internet and globalization. So we've talked about uh, walls. <clears throat> And then we talked about bridges. We talked about walls and bridges, networks and convergences. And uh, when we talk about bridges, I think of the internet as a, as a kind of bridge. Uh, the Zapatistas opposed the North American Free Trade Agreement. The free trade area of the America, the, the, the free trade agreement between Canada and the United States came into being in 1988. There was a hugely contentious election in Canada in 1988 where some took the position that we shouldn't go into this free trade deal with the United States. Brian Mulroney was very much for it. Then it was extended into Mexico. So there was an extension of the free trade agreement to three countries now, and that was called the North American Free Trade Area, NAFTA. The day that NAFTA came into being, 1994, the same uh, period that the WTO was created, there was a, an uprising of sorts in Chiapas, Mexico, and uh, the Zapatistas uh, took over some uh, communities in Chiapas and uh, affirmed that uh, NAFTA was putting in danger the type of land tenure that the Indians based their, their traditional way of producing food in, in, in Chiapas. So uh, Subcomandante Marcos, you must have probably seen the Belaclava-wearing, pipe-smoking uh, sort of intellectual who, who spoke for the Zapatistas, and although it was a an Indian movement, uh, Subcommandante sub Marcos was probably a, a professor or uh, some kind of uh, intellectual from the city, but lived with the Indians for a long period of time. Uh, so the Zapatistas took their stand with respect to the local situation in Mexico, but then there was uh, this tremendous uh, exuberance on the internet where uh, these ideas were taken and expanded and built upon and in a sense became the basis of a critique of neoliberal globalization, of the type of globalization that says, let's deregulate business, let's make governments smaller, let's uh, download services, let's uh, essentially expand the domain for privatization, 
expand the latitude for companies to make profit, diminish the area for governments to represent public will. This critique that was centered among the Zapatistas found its way into the internet. At one point, Naomi Klein uh, counted 45,000 sites, 45,000 Zapatista sites. When I was down in Quebec City in 2001, uh, there was a group there, and they called themselves the Zapatistas of Cleveland. And they were, you know, they didn't seem to be Indian visually, uh, but they were identifying with this movement. So uh, anybody know who Tom Hayden is? If we go back to the Tom Hayden. <clears throat> he was very much identified with the uh, resistance in the 60s to, you know, the Vietnam. Uh, there was a kind of youth movement, uh, leadership of the youth movement. He eventually married Jane Fonda. And Jane Fonda, what did they used to call her? Hanoi Jane. Didn't she go to North Vietnam and show sympathy to the, to the Viet Cong? Uh, you know, he's a, he's a famous activist, a kind of Hollywood uh, activist. Um, anyway, he puts together this book, The Zapatista Reader. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm just riffing on uh, the founding of the Longhouse League and indigenous peoples and how, uh, how this plays itself out in, in, different, in different ways. Let me just uh, take a passage from... Hayden's introduction to the Zapatistas. Chiapas raised from the hidden depths of the continental history an issue that our society seeks to forget. The conquest of America that left millions dead is the foundation on which our civilizations are built. To call the bloody events that began 500 years ago a genocide potentially undermines the legitimacy of all the many Americans, Mexicans, and Westerners uh, of all that many Americans, Mexicans, Mexicans and Westerners hold dear. The integrity of our institution seems to depend on denying rather than candidly confronting our original sin. Instead of calling it genocide, it, re, it, it is renamed a tragic misunderstanding, a dark chapter in our past, something regrettable uh, but finished, not the responsibility of, of present generations. Uh, you know, I, I, I refer to that and then I put this, uh, yeah. Andy. What, uh, what year was that book published? I'd say it's about 2003, I think. It's uh, 2002. If it's you go to the text, I'll just prove it here. Look at the power of that, you know. When, uh, can, you, can you go to the big picture of me here? Just, just the, the concept that, you know, this is being blown up and then go back to the picture, you know. The, this this document document camera I think is uh, it's an amazing device, and you know the the ability to uh, to make your notes to use this as a kind of blackboard and uh, to juxtapose things to to underline things to um, you know to use a new kind of blackboard I mean in a way it's low tech. And then we're not even getting into surfing the internet, you know, surfing the internet on the internet. That would have excited Marsha McLuhan, you know, being on the internet, surfing the internet. Um, you know, the, 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 these devices, I, I just find so much power in this. Uh, 
um, the 20 days on the witness stand that I actually am addressing these issues of genocide. I've been, I'm an expert witness in a court case. And uh, the case uh, has to do with a group called the League of Indian Nations of North America. It starts with a criminal charge. Um, I have done uh, 20 days on the witness stand up until now. And that's like 9 in the morning till 4 at night, 4 in the afternoon, talking about these issues. Um, and I got the court to bring in a document camera. I said I just need a document camera. And it, it really changes the dynamics when you you know, when you're trying to prove something and you're trying to make the point that this is, this can be documented, there's evidence here, the fact that you can put it up and zoom in on the actual word and, and uh, the key phrase, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's very uh, dynamic. This image here, if we can go back to, uh, this is Time magazine. And uh, so I'm trying to sort of, represent this issue so that you see it not as a kind of museum piece in some kind of uh, obscure part of history. There are, there are, you know, you might look at, a, at this man and say, um, does this man belong in our world? Surely this is a, a reflection of an era that has now passed. This is going back to that thinking, which is tr incredibly pervasive in our society. We may not articulate it, but that there is uh, you know, savagery to barbarism, to civilization, that all human beings can be put on a hierarchy. And you know, how often do you hear, well, we can't go back to the teepee, or uh, you, know, you can't go backwards in time. As, as if, if you're making these assertions, you must be wanting to go backwards in time. Well, who's to, I mean, this is where the theory of relativity breaks it open. And suddenly, those who were thought to be primitive, well, what if it turns out there's a possibility for a cure for cancer? or uh, some kind of insight into ecology that, that will enable us to save the rainforest or, or uh, cure AIDS or, you know, who, I mean, much of the pharmaceutical knowledge comes from watching how the indigenous peoples in the rainforest, for instance, what do they use for medicine? Where do they get their medicines? Uh, so that's what this is about, uh, this article. Uh, when, when native cultures disappear, so does a trove of uh, scientific and, and medical wisdom. Uh, we're just about at, a, at the break here, but uh, let me just uh, do one more on the, on the chronology. Uh, Ottoman Turks capture the Byzantine metropolis of Constantinople and raise it and uh, rename it Istanbul. This is one of my favorite images of globalization, and I've used it several times. <clears throat> this is a place called uh, Hagia Sophia in what is now Istanbul. But of course, uh, Istanbul is the name given to Constantinople after the, the Ottoman Empire take it over as their capital. So um, they changed the name. Now, where does it get its name, Constantinople? From Constantine the uh, emperor of the Roman Empire who made uh, Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And then the Roman Empire divided in two. And so there was the Western part and the Vatican, uh, the Church of Rome, uh, is in that heritage. But then there is the Eastern part, which is the Byzantine world. 
And the Byzantine world, of course, doesn't have a central organization. It doesn't have anything like a pope. So you have you know, the Byzantine Church of Ukraine, the Byzantine Church of the Serbs, the Byzantine Church of, of Russia, the Byzantine Church of the, the Greeks. Uh, so this was, in a way, the, uh, uh, one of the most important Byzantine Christian churches. And then after 15, uh, 1453, now it's a Muslim country. Now it's a Muslim domain. So they put up the minarets. And uh, so you see the convergence of cultures. And so often globalization, you don't just leave the past and move on to something else and, a, and the past disappears and is extinguished and is obliterated. Oftentimes it continues on, but in a reformulated fashion. So to me, this is, this is symbolic of that. And you can even go back to this uh, site, and apparently this site was a the site of some kind of monument to Apollo, the Greek god Apollo. So in the text that goes with this, uh, Hagia Sophia, or the Church of Holy Wisdom, Istanbul, uh, and it gives the date. Uh, it's hard to uh, read it on the, on the, uh, on the document uh, camera, but I'll just read it out loud. Istanbul, uh, 1532 to 1537 AD. Three great ancient heritages, the rationality of Greece, the power of Rome, and the mystical... How about we look at the picture while I read this? <clears throat> and the, the power of Rome and the mystical transcendentalism of the East are synthesized in this masterpiece of the Byzantine era, which summarizes the attitudes of a waning antiquity at the same time it defines the ideals of an ascendant Christianity. It is the first known example in which monumental use is made of the principle of the dome on pendatives, a dome resting on four arches. The vast scale of its stone, brick, and masonry construction recalls the daring of Roman architecture, yet the resulting emotional effect is more nearly oriental, deriving from a radiant light that pierces an immense interior space and reflects off glittering mosaic decorations. Christian church architecture was to take its form and character largely from the precedents established here. Erected during the reign of Justinian, Hagia Sophia, Hagia Sophia reflects the grandeur which that emperor's rule brought to, e to the Eastern Roman Empire. The four minarets were added after the Turkish conquest of Byzant Byzantium in 1453 transformed the church into a Muslim mosque. Uh, the uh, Ottoman Empire, this is in a sense the capital of the Ottoman Empire, which is a very important role in, uh, in uh, here's an interesting illustration. Uh, <clears throat> Islam tends to be uh, spread overland. Uh, Christianity tends to use boats tends to uh, be spread by oceans. And so here's an effort to depict uh, different uh, uh, civilizational complexes. Of course, the Mongols have this interesting role where they're, they're, they're as far uh, east as Europe and as far west as China. So in the era of Marco Polo, when he goes along the Silk Road and writes about, about it, he actually was working for the Mongols Mongolia, Mongols. I was getting Mongols and Mongols mixed up, apparently. Uh, 
in one of the earlier uh, lectures, but the Mongols. Marco Polo was an administrator for the Mongols in China. Uh, and in that era, you could travel uh, quite, quite openly when the, the Mongols were controlling that. But then when the Ottoman Empire uh, starts to uh, radiate outward, uh, it's increasingly difficult to go overland uh, to, to the Orient. And I think this is one of the impetuses that drives uh, Columbus westward. He's seeking to escape uh, the necessity of going through the Islamic world. The Islamic world is empowered. They have a state mechanism. Uh, and they have uh, confidence in themselves. Uh, the Ottoman Empire is, a, you know, the sultans, it, 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 it's run on, uh, to some extent, religious law. But interestingly, when the Jews were pushed out of uh, Spain in the Spanish Inquisition, uh, a number of them sought refuge in, in uh, Istanbul. And the Ottoman Empire took in the refugees from the Inquisition. I mean, the Inquisition grows out, I think, out of uh, the Crusades, you know, this tension between the Christian world and the Islamic world, and the thrust to try to take back control of Jerusalem. That issue is very much alive to this day. Uh, this is, uh, you know, this is talked about in the Islamic world. The memory of this is very, uh, is very powerful. When George Bush talked about the war on terror as a crusade, uh, that was immediately picked up upon in, in the Islamic world. So let's take a break, and I'll see you in about 10 minutes.